0: Daniel chapter 8 this morning. Daniel chapter 8. I think probably all of us are familiar with the battle of Little Bighorn. You've probably heard of it, I'm sure. George Custer, you know, Custer's last stand. Probably all of us are familiar with that battle and the aftermath of it, but of course Custer, his pride got in the way. Um, he confronted some, some band of Indians and rather than waiting on reinforcements. He decided to go ahead and attack, and we know the rest of the story, of course, that five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies were annihilated. Custer's last stand. Crazy Horse and his men defeated the U.S. Cavalry soundly in that battle. Now, this morning, I want to talk to you about another little bighorn, but it's not the one in Montana. All right, so we've been working our way through the book of Daniel, and we've worked our way through Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, we saw how Daniel had some dreams and visions in which he saw these strange, <laughs> strange dreams and strange visions. And like I said, if you and I had those visions, I'd say to stop eating burritos before you go to bed. But Daniel had some strange ones. And he had, he had dreams, visions of these beasts that would arise that represented world empires. The first was a lion that represented Babylon. The second was a bear that was raised on one side that represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The third was a leopard that represented Greece. And then there was another beast, the fourth beast, that was really a monster that most scholars believe represented the Roman Empire. And then we saw how a little horn would arise out of that fourth kingdom, which was the Antichrist, which is or will be the Antichrist, who will arise at the end and wear out the saints. And, but we also saw how Daniel saw the Ancient of Days sitting in judgment, how the fire streamed out of his throne, and all of that, what glorious vision. Then we saw the, how the Son of Man, he saw one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and the Son of Man being given dominion and glory and power and a kingdom by the Father, by the Ancient of Days. And of course, that Son of Man is none other than Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that he came. And he's been highly exalted and been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. So thankful for Jesus this morning, aren't you? Now we come to Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to hear about another little horn. And there's just a lot of little horns in the book of Daniel. But all of them represent world leaders, okay? Leaders that will, would arise. And so now it's the third year, in the third year of King Belshazzar, Daniel says, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that, which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did what he pleased and became great. Now we're going to stop there. We're going to be working our way through the entire chapter. But just want to stop there for a moment. Susa was located in what is today southwest Iran. I don't know if you can see it there. It's east of Babylon. But this was considered the seat of the Persian Empire. And in his vision, Daniel is still being—he's still living under the Babylonian Empire. But in his vision, he's transported away from Babylon toward the next world empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And he sees himself there beside a river where he looks up and he sees a ram that has two horns. And one horn is higher than the other, just like the lopsided bear in chapter 7. And this, this ram represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And we know that because if you look down, if you'll just look down in the chapter to verse 20, it tells us that. Verse 20 says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Now I mentioned previously that Darius and Cyrus may have been the same individual. A lot of scholars believe that they were the same individual. However, there's some evidence that Darius perhaps was the throne name for the Median king Xerxes, Xerxes, and he was the father-in-law of Cyrus, and that's according to the Greek historian Xenophon. And Cyrus did not become the highest regent in the Medo-Persian Empire until after the fall of Babylon. Cyrus was the, the conquering general, and Darius, or Xerxes, he was an old man. He was 63 years old is what we were told in chapter, seven when he would, or chapter 6 when he would come to reign. But whatever the case, Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, there's two rams, right? Two horns, one higher than the other. The shorter one came up first, but then the higher one was Cyrus. And this ram charges, and we're told he charges westward and northward and southward, and no one could rescue from his power. The Medo-Persian Empire just swept over the earth. Conquered Babylon, Syria, the Asia Minor, They went north toward Europe. They made raids into Greece, conquered Armenia, Egypt, Ethiopia, just conquering the world. And Daniel is seeing all of this happen long before it ever happened. And this ram is conquering and unconquerable until a goat plows into it. Look at verse 5. Because Daniel says, says, as I was considering... Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the book of the canal, on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with powerful wrath, in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. So Daniel is, is seeing this ram with its two horns, and then all of a sudden this goat comes sweeping across the earth, Blitzkrieg style, if you know World War II history. Uh, the Nazis attacked Blitzkrieg rapidly, and that's what this goat does. It just rapidly, and, and, and Daniel's vision, the, ram, or the goat is going, not, his feet aren't even touching the ground. That's just symbolizing how fast this goat is conquering. Now we know who this goat is because verse 21 tells us. Verse 21 says, And the goat was the king of Greece. And the great horn between between his eyes is the first king. And we know from history who the first king of Greece was. The first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great just rapidly... Conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and and most of the known world at that time. Just quickly conquered the world. In 334 BC, he launched his attack against Persia. And with only 35,000 men, his forces plunged across the river. They attacked Darius's. Now this is a different Darius than the one earlier. Attacking Darius's 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen and... Alexander and his 35,000 men killed, reportedly 20,000 men, and they only lost 100 of their own troops. So vastly outnumbered, but yet Alexander and his men just kind of beat the socks off of the Medo-Persian Empire. But he died at the age of 33. We know that from history. Verse 8 tells us that when this great horn... When he became strong, the horn was broken. And again, Daniel's seeing all of this ahead of time. And he sees this great horn is broken. And verse 8 says that instead of it, came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And then again, if you'll look down in verse 22, it says, As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Now, with the rest of the chapter, these four kingdoms are going to become important, especially for another little horn that arises out of one of those four kingdoms. And that's really what we're going to be focusing most of our attention on this morning. When Alexander died, his four main generals began to battle over his kingdom. And one of the kingdoms was by a general named Seleucus and another was named Ptolemy. I'm not going to try to pronounce the other two names. You can read those on the screen there. But Seleucus and Ptolemy or Ptolemy is the two important ones that we're going to focus on this morning. We'll see those other two later on in the book of Daniel. But so a period of time goes by, about 150 years after Alexander the Great dies. There's a lot of battling going back and forth between these two kingdoms. Seleucus and Ptolemy's kingdoms. Ptolemy ruled over Egypt, Seleucus as you can see ruled over most of Mesopotamia and across what is now Iraq and Iran. Until finally in verse 8 we're told out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east and toward the glorious land. So there's another little horn. Again, these horns are just representative of leaders. And the fact that he's a little horn just kind of represents how he got started. In fact, in this apocalyptic literature, as I mentioned, the horns here, but this little horn rises out of the Syrian Seleucid dynasty. So that yellow part there on that map, he arises out of this dynasty. And scripture says that he's, He's growing exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. you have any idea what the glorious land might be? Of course, that's the land of of Israel. And this king is a man named Antiochus IV. He's the eighth ruler of that Seleucid dynasty. So now Again, we're 150 years now after Alexander the Great. Daniel seeing this 500 and some years ahead through God showing him this vision. And now Antiochus IV arises in about the year 175 or so. And he started out little because he wasn't the heir to the throne. His nephew was. But he became king and he started making some conquest and he grew large. He conquered Persia and Parthia, Armenia, and then toward the glorious land, the beautiful land. That's where God's covenant people were now relocated. They had went back from Babylon by this point. Now they're back in their homeland. And I know this morning you probably didn't sign up for a history lesson when you came to church this morning. I promise you we're getting somewhere that I think would be relevant to us, okay? So if you don't like history, just stay with me for just a moment, all right? A few minutes. Alexander the Great died in 323. Antiochus the I began to reign in 175. He's this little horn. And Daniel here is going to see some things about Antiochus. And he sees here that this man, out of this, out of this one horn, arises this little horn, Antiochus, and he's going to see that this little horn is going to reign with some demonic power. So look here at verse 23. So skip down in the chapter to verse 23. It says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, those four generals at the latter end of their kingdoms, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king with bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Now, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I actually like how the Christian Standard Bible translates this. And it puts it this way. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. Verse 24 says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. So where is he getting his power from? He's getting his power from the prince and the power of the air. Demonic power. And he's filled with this power and he begins to conquer. And as he conquers... Not only is he filled with demonic power, but he also brings just a destructive persecution to the people of God. Verse 10 says, It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, and it trampled on them. Now again, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's, it's using these word pictures to tell what's going to take place. And in this context, the host or the army of heaven and the stars are referring to God's people. And this leader that Daniel sees arising is going to just bring destructive persecution to the people of God. He would dare to even attack God's people and trample on them. He's going to bring persecution. So what would he do? He would devastate the saints is what scripture says he's going to do. And, and according to one historian, Antiochus has the distinction of being the first king, first person in history, to persecute a people exclusively for their religious faith. So Antiochus begins to persecute the Jews because they're Jews. Not just because he wants to conquer and all of that, but he, has, he just has a hatred for the Jewish people and their god the book of if you've ever read some of the apocrypha first and second maccabees now we don't consider it scripture but it gives some information historical information and first and second maccabees tells some of the stories that took place under antiochus for instance it tells a story of two jewish mothers who were determined they were going to obey god's law and they and part of god's old covenant law was Your sons had to be circumcised and they were determined they were going to circumcise their sons. However, Antiochus had outlawed circumcision. And when he heard about it, he killed those babies. He hung the babies around the dead bodies, around their mother's necks. Then he marched those mothers all through the city along with all their family members And everyone who had assisted them with the circumcision, he marched them through the city of Jerusalem up to the highest wall in the city. And then he threw those mothers with their dead bodies of their children wrapped around their necks. He threw them down off the walls of the city to the rocks below. So that just kind of gives you a little bit of a picture of the type of persecution that Antiochus was bringing. On another occasion, a, a Jewish mother and her seven sons were arrested they were beaten, and they were forced to eat pork. Now, of course, Jews could not eat pork under the old covenant law. And one of the men said, "What hope do you what do you hope to gain by doing this? We would rather die than abandon the tradition of our ancestors." Well, that made Antiochus so angry that he ordered that huge pans and kettles be brought to a boil. And then he took those seven sons of this lady. He cut their tongues out. He scalped them, cut off their hands and feet, and ordered them thrown into the boiling pan. And as the cloud of smoke streamed from the pan, they said, the Lord God, the mother said, the Lord God is looking on and understands our suffering, is what the mother said. So Antiochus was truly a demonic individual bringing destructive persecution to God's people. Antiochus would order his soldiers to cut down without mercy anyone that they encountered who was trying to follow Jewish laws and customs. He massacred the young and the old, women and children And one particular occasion in in three days' time, he had 80,000 Jewish people murdered and 40,000 more sold into slavery. So this was someone who was truly devastating the saints of God. Look at verse 11 again. It says, describes him as when he became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now again, I'm going to read this from the Christian Standard Bible. Speaks of him acting arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. So not only was this Antiochus, was he devastating the saints, but he was also defiling the sanctuary of God in the temple. He gave himself, Antiochus gave himself the name, Epiphanes, which means illustrious God, or God manifest. So he crowns himself as God manifest. Then he went into the Jewish temple, and he took the Jewish, the high priest, out of the temple, and he put his, a priest of his own choosing in the temple. He believed that the Greek gods were superior to Yahweh, the God of the Jews, And so he canceled all of the Jewish feasts, all of their festivals, and he required the Jewish people to celebrate, to observe Greek festivals to Greek gods. He, He had a festival that involved the worship of the God of pleasure and wine. He had another festival for worshiping Saturn. He put prostitutes in the temple for those celebrations. He wouldn't allow the Jews to observe the Sabbath. He banned the practice of circumcision, as I mentioned earlier. You see, his purpose was to devastate the saints, to defile the sanctuary, but then also he was determined to destroy Scripture. And if you look at verse 12 in the, in the CSB, it says, in the, in the rebellion, the army was given up together with a regular sacrifice. The horn, again, this is speaking of Antiochus, threw truth to the ground and was successful in what he did and what it did. So this guy is just determined he's going to do everything in his power to destroy, to throw truth to the ground. He outlawed the reading of Scripture. He burned every copy of the Torah he could get his hands on. The book of 1 Maccabees tells us that any books of the law which were found were torn up and burned, and anyone who was caught with a copy of the sacred books or who obeyed the law was put to death by order of the king. Now, as I mentioned... He crowned himself God-manifest, Antiochus Epiphanes. But it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the Jewish people, when he wasn't around to hear him, they called him Antiochus Epiphamons, which means Antiochus the madman, because he truly was a madman. So that's the persecution that he brought. But Daniel also finds out that this little horn antiochus would also be destined for punishment now he's seen all of this ahead of time and he's he's in total shock but then in verse 13 he hears an angel speaking he says then i heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering the transgression that makes desolate And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. So this persecution is going to last for 2,300, most scholars believe 2,300 evenings and mornings, which is 2,300 days. And that's what happened. The Jewish suffering under Antiochus lasted From 170 B.C., when the high priest was taken out of the temple, the Jewish high priest was taken and assassinated, to the end of it in 164 B.C. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here for a moment, so let's just back up for a moment. He's power-hungry. Antiochus is power-hungry. He's money-strapped. He's a conquering leader. So he thinks that it would be a good idea to invade Egypt. Remember, Ptolemy... And his descendants ruled in Egypt. It's interesting, and we'll find more about this out later, but Ptolemy, when he, uh, when he took over Egypt, he decided that he was going to make Alexander the Great, the true Pharaoh who had died. So he buried Alexander in a city that we call Alexandria today because he was trying to set up that he's now Pharaoh. Pharaoh is what Ptolemy did. Well, Antiochus decides to attack Ptolemy, and while he's gone, much to the joy of the Jews, a rumor spreads that Antiochus was killed while he's down in Egypt. And so while he's gone, they try to reinstate a genuine high priest in the temple. But there was only one problem. Antiochus wasn't dead, and so when he finds out about it, plus he's angry because at this time, Rome is actually the one ruling the whole world. He's really a vassal of Rome at this point. When he goes down to conquer in Egypt, he's told to go back home. Well, now he's really upset because he's been told by Rome to stop trying to conquer Egypt. And so he's got to go back home. And then while, when he's going back home, he finds out that the Jews have once again put a high priest into the temple. And so he responds by killing tens of thousands more Jews in Jerusalem, 40,000 more dying within three days. And then he did something particularly horrific. He goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar of burnt offering to the Greek god Zeus. And thus he committed what's called the abomination of desolation. Now, more about that later on. So that's Antiochus. But there was some Jews, some brave Jews, who decided they'd had enough. One of them was a priest named Matthias. Matthias was commanded by one of Antiochus' commanders in his village to lead an offering a pagan sacrifice in his village. And Matthias said, I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that God made with our ancestors. With God's help, we will never abandon his law or disobey his command. We will not obey the king's decrees and we will not change our way of worship in the least. Matthias was done with Antiochus and his minions. And so (laughs) Matthias kills the commissioner of Antiochus, he overturns the pagan altar in his town, and then he and his five sons fled to the hills. They became what was known as the Maccabees. The Maccabees come from the Aramaic term which means hammer, and it represented how fierce his sons were, And so for two years, they fight. And finally, the Maccabees were able to recapture the temple. They cleansed it from the abomination of desolation. And after taking back the temple, they wanted to light a menorah. And you probably know the rest of the story. Because there in the temple, they could only find a small flask of the special oil that was required for lighting the menorah. And it was only enough oil to last for one day. But reportedly the oil miraculously lasted for eight days and that is now celebrated in the feast of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, the festival of lights. That's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. In verse 25 of Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel says that this evil king shall rise up even against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken and not by human hands. In other words, God was going to take care of Antiochus. And once again, that's exactly what happened. Because Antiochus' reign of terror came suddenly to an end when, as told in the book of 2 Maccabees, it tells that he was seized with an incurable pain in his bowels that led to excruciating internal torture. And suddenly he was, he was hurtled from his chariot, and the violence of his headlong fall racked every bone of his body. He was broken by God. And Antiochus' reign of terror came quickly to an end. Now, throughout history, there's been a lot of madmen who's done a lot of horrible things. Mighty rulers rise, mighty rulers fall. Take, for instance, the rise of the Nazis. Again, World War II. The rise of the Nazis, for a brief period, they dominated Europe. But Adolf Hitler died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound after being holed away in a bunker in Berlin while his empire collapsed all around him. But then after World War II came the Nuremberg Trials in 1946. Fourteen high-ranking Nazi celebrities, if you will, were put to death for their war crimes. What happened? Their bodies, after they were put to death, their bodies were taken to a crematorium. Their ashes were put into a box. A vehicle drove about an hour out into the Bavarian countryside And the ashes of that box were unceremoniously dumped into a stream and carried away. Empires rise and fall. But there's one king who will never fall. And that is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I've given you this morning some history. And the reason I've done so is because, well... All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable to us, all of it. Now, if I was just to preach just, you know, what I felt like preaching, I can assure you probably Daniel chapter 8 would not come on my radar if I just preached whatever I felt like preaching. But because I believe all scripture is profitable, I believe Daniel chapter 8 is profitable to us. Now, All Scripture is inspired, but not all Scripture is inspiring, if you follow me, right? This is the most inspiring passage of Scripture this morning. But let me tell you, give you a few reasons real quickly why I think it's profitable for us. One is that Antiochus apparently prefigures what will take place under the horrific reign of the Antichrist. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus answers some of his disciples' questions And one of the questions was, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And one of the things that he tells them is that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, so apparently the abomination of desolation that took place under Antiochus wasn't the last one. Well, then if you read on down through Matthew chapter 24, a lot of scholars will tell you, well, The abomination of desolation took place in the year 70 A.D. And what took place in the year 70 A.D. is the Roman emperor, or would-be emperor eventually, Titus came through and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But he also committed an abomination of desolation in the temple. So was that the last one? Well, scholars debate that. I tend to not believe that will be the last time because we find also in Luke's account that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is where prophecy becomes difficult. And I I don't want to be hard-nosed on any of it, okay? Because prophecy sometimes is is difficult for us to fully grasp, and I don't think anybody has fully grasped it all. As I mentioned, many scholars believe perhaps Matthew 24 was fulfilled in the year 70 A.D. Could be. However, there's parts of Matthew 24 that have certainly not been fulfilled because Christ has not yet returned. So I tend to believe there'll be another abomination of desolation. In fact, we're told that the Antichrist, the end will not come until the Antichrist arises. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul makes it clear that when the Antichrist does arise, he will sit in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. So apparently this is going to happen again. Similar to what happened under Antiochus. Whatever happens, we have to be ready. Amen? There's been a lot of little horns throughout history and all of them operate under the power of the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, but we know from Scripture that someday the Antichrist is going to arise. Meanwhile, we're like countless believers through the ages. We're like the disciples. We're like the angel in the vision. We're like the psalmist in Psalm 13 that asked this question, How long, O Lord? How long? We'd all like to know the answer to that question, wouldn't we? And some people try to set dates, and and that's just foolish. We don't know how long it's going to be. But all of us, like the psalmist, have, have wondered, God, how long? How long? Even the martyrs around the throne are asking, How long? How long? And one of the lessons of Daniel is that we need to learn patience, perseverance. Daniel and the children of Israel who were under captivity in Babylon in Daniel's day and early into the reign of the Medo-Persian empire, they had to learn that even after the 70 years of captivity that had been prophesied, even when they got to go back to their homeland, even yet their captivity would not end. While they were able to go back, they had to learn perseverance. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them generation after generation, crisis after crisis, empire after empire. And listen, God never promised us in his word that everything would be rosy for us as Christians. In fact, he promised us the exact opposite. We have to be prepared to persevere in our faith regardless of who our leaders are. Rather, rather they be godly or they be sinful. And if I'm reading history correctly, I'm pretty sure that most leaders have been in the sinful category and not the godly one. Long term. We don't like that, do we? Like we'd like, we, we like to stick our Christian life in the microwave and... Push the 30 second button and have instant discipleship. That's what we would like. We prefer the quick fix. But Daniel shows us that perseverance is a necessary component of the Christian life. One of my favorite sermons to listen to is by the African American preacher, S.M. Lockridge. I've played clips of it here before. You've heard it. It's Friday. But Sunday's coming, right? We love that. We, we love that at Easter time to think about it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. But the reality is we have to go through Friday and we have to go through Saturday. Sunday is coming. But first we have to persevere through Friday and Saturday. So we cling to the hope of the resurrection, but we must persevere in the meantime. That's my point. So we may suffer, but we must persevere. I want to close, last verse of chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8. Look at the last verse. He says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. I imagine so. I mean, he's just seen everything that we now see, by and large, in history. But he's seen it all ahead of time, and he says, I, I was sick. But then notice what happens next. Then I arose and went about the king's vision, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So he's overwhelmed. He's so overwhelmed that he lays sick in bed for a few days. He knows now that the 70 years of captivity are about to end, but he knows everything is not going to be rosy for God's people. So it it sickens him. It devastates him. But now he's seen the future. But what does he do? Does Daniel then get up and begin ranting like a wild prophet? Does he make websites about the last days and publish books? And begin having copious amounts of charts? No, that's not what Daniel does. I mean, he has seen in a way that nobody else has seen what the future holds. Obviously, he wrote down what he saw because we're reading it. But what did Daniel do? He went about the king's business. And here's my point. You and I must tarry until he comes. Either when Christ returns or you and I breathe our last breath. We have to tarry. We have to persevere in our faith. So we, we are not among those Who sell all their possessions and go up on a mountaintop because they think Christ is coming back because somebody has set a date. You know what's happened every time somebody set a date? They've all been wrong. Imagine that. 0% have been right. So we don't do that. Instead, we live every day ready for Christ's return. We go about our business, we go to our jobs. You'll wake up tomorrow morning, you'll go to your job. And you'll live for Christ on Monday. And you'll do the same thing again on Tuesday. And if Jesus chooses to come back this week, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if he tarries, you and I must persevere. Whether it be under Antiochus or the Antichrist or whoever's in Washington, D.C., we continue to trust Jesus. Amen? We continue to serve Him. Well, thank you for your attention this morning. Stand with me. I want God to help me to persevere. I want to be about the Father's business. May God help us. Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross for our sins so that each one of us that is here this morning could come to faith in you and Lord, we look forward to the day in which we will see You face to face. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Lord, we know that if You tarry, You tarry because You're not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so Lord, if You choose, if it's another thousand years before Your return, help us, Lord, in the life that You give us to live every day ready, ready, to see you. For Lord, we don't know when we'll stand before you and give an account. But Lord, we want to be ready and we want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. And Lord, we know that our only hope is in Jesus. And so Lord, we put our faith in you and we ask that you will direct our lives today as we go about our business. This week, as we go about our business, help us, Lord, to be faithful no matter the circumstances we may encounter, help us to be found faithful to you. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for coming this morning. God bless you. I hope you have a fantastic week.